I think One Nation's been the only consistent political party for the last 20 years. They're not talking about you. Right. Well, let me tell you, One Nation is talking about you. It's like the media's run away from One Nation. They're too scared to ask us any questions, mainly because we're straight talkers and we've got the answers. This is like a call to arms. You guys need to start making the real decisions and who you're going to vote for. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex-Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp and as always, I'm joined by Adam Zara and Rebecca Thompson. How are you guys going tonight? Good, Stephen. How are you going, mate? Yeah, all good. I'm well, thank you. And tonight we have uh, Andrew Robertson on, who uh, was the United Australia Party candidate in my electorate of uh, Ruringa and... Uh, even though we were, uh, op, you know, opposition to each other, we uh, developed a good friendship, and uh, have I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, he's also a lawyer, and he's studying a master in jurisprudence, which is uh, legal theory. So we thought we'd, we'd have him on uh, just to give uh, uh, his opinions on a few different topics. And we really want to focus on common law, and uh, and and versus. Uh, common law versus a bill of rights because that's been a hot topic in australia all the way back to federation and uh that's something that uh even goes back for me to year 11 legal studies class but uh we'll, we'll um we're excited to have him on i think this is going to be a really interesting episode and uh how are you going tonight uh andrew uh doing very well steve thank you for having me on board and uh, looking forward to you know to going through any questions or anything that you want to discuss tonight you're our first um united australia party Yes. Dun, dun, dun. No, I've been on the last. No, there's, we've got a lot in common, far more in common than uh, what separates us. In fact, I yeah. think you know, on, on ma we major really on the majors, and I think on some of the economic stuff we might differ slightly. But um, you know, I think that most of us that ran for either United Australia Party or One Nation both love Australia. We want to see Australia flourish, and uh, you know, I think both parties um, have a bright future. I hope they do. In any event. So can you explain to everyone what jurisprudence is? Jurisprudence is effectively the study of legal theory. It's kind of a, an archaic way of saying that you, you, you theorise about why laws are made, uh, why laws are followed, uh, what kind of, uh, what impetuses are there in, in, in lawmaking generally? Is it a moral domain? Is it an amoral domain? Uh, is it something that... Um, that you know how, how fundamental is law in society so you look at really law as um it, it's a theoretical kind of study and you're looking at why you know people do certain things so that's what i study when i do jurisprudence a lot of the topics are discrete so you look at things like what is a bill of rights what is a constitution um, you look at uh, the import of say freedom of speech in in a democracy and uh, more or less kind of what makes australia um, unique in respect of its legal system and how do we stand up from the rest of the world and the pros and cons of um, different legal systems. So you look at uh, legal systems in common law countries like Australia, United Kingdom, uh, the United States, and then you also look at, say, like a communist legal system or uh, some other form of, of legal system that's a hybrid or a civil law country. So there's a lot to study, but it's not for everyone. Most lawyers hate jurisprudence. Most find it very dull and dry, um, but I was uh, attracted to it um, because I felt that it was the um, probably the branch of study that could most uh, protect freedom of speech in this country, and I felt like I'd like to be an expert in something that um, 
that was going to have benefits to to the population at large. And Australia is a bit unique because we don't have a Bill of Rights when you know compared to America. Uh, now their their Bill of Rights is the first ten amend amendments of their constitution. Now, if you go back to federation, there was the argument uh, between having a Bill of Rights or just sticking to common law, and we, you know, the overriding argument that was we should stick to common law. Now, I've heard both sides argued. Uh, the common law side, I was actually having a conversation during the election with Peter Crawford, who was the uh, New South Wales state member for Balmain back in the 1980s. And I was uh, talking to him about having a Bill of Rights here in Australia. And he said, no, that's a terrible idea uh, because if you have a Bill of Rights then it's open to interpretation. And he, he quoted a quote from Robert Menzies uh, when he was prime minister uh, who, and when he was prime minister, he was considered a, a quite an expert on the constitution. Mm. And he said, I don't know the exact quote, but he said, if a bill of rights, if we, if Australia had a bill of rights, he wouldn't want to be the one interpreting it because we'd be open to interpretation where uh, he favoured common law. But on the flip side of that, uh, I've also heard people argue against common law when you look at the 1967 referendum uh, for the Aboriginals and later Mabo and how long it took common law to catch up for the freedoms or to preserve for those uh, for the Aboriginal people. So with those with those two arguments as a as a pretext, what's your? I know uh, UAP had the, uh, the policy of a Bill of Rights. Why do you think that is the best option over common law? Well, I'd say that just quickly, common law is really a system of law. It's not it's not so much um, something that necessarily enshrines a Bill of Rights. Say. Uh, what the common law does and has done historically is to recognise certain rights that people have by virtue of being a human. So um, there's a guy called William Blackstone who ran, uh, he, who wrote the Blackstone commentaries back in the day, and he kind of categorised the types of things that are seemingly inalienable to humans. One being, say, like the right to bodily autonomy, for example, or the right to, you know, free passage or certain things. Uh, and um, effectively, what the common law did was recognise things that uh, that kind of encroached upon people's liberty and they were deemed to be a tort, which is a type of law, something like negligence, like you have the right um, in some areas to expect service to be of a certain standard and if something falls south of that, then you have a cause of action against that person for damages. Another one would be like trespass to property and that doesn't mean just someone jumping you know, over your fence. It can, you know, Steve, if you took my, or detonate is probably a better claim, but if you stop me from, from using some of my personal chattels or something like that, that could be trespass. If you stole my car and I couldn't use it, that would be a, what's called a tort of debt in you. All of these things are causes of action. So it's defamation as well. If you if you slander me or libel, it's called overseas. Um, you defamed me. Uh, then I would have a right to the preservation of my um, reputation. So there are certain things that the common law recognise. Uh, and, and that was, um, it used to be enough to protect that in terms of something like bodily autonomy, for example, would be something that the common law would have recognised historically that um, it's someone that, you know, took you and wanted to, say, pin you down and do something to you, that would be false imprisonment. And that would be another thing that the common law recognised. What happened in America was uh, when they were looking at constituting their states and, and actually having a federal constitution, the question was whether or not they needed this kind of um, this moral edge to the document that they were um, ratifying. So the, the constitution, same with ours, is large, largely constitutive. It means that we uh, are giving certain powers to the states to 
sorry, we're giving certain powers from the states to the federal government to run a country, uh, but it doesn't really deal with anything that, that is in the realm of um, human uh, interaction and, and human relationships. It's quite, I would say, like an amoral document. It's really about what powers a federal government has, uh, what powers the judiciary have, and, um, and the kind of um, interplay between the, the heads of government. So what was so good about the Bill of Rights was that it was uh, post-War of Independence, uh, there was a big move, um, what we would call amongst libertarians today, guys that were inspired by people like John Locke, for example, who wrote uh, an essay concerning human understanding. He wrote his second treatise on government, which was very, very um, influential on people uh, and informing the minds of people that there were certain inalienable rights that no government ever had the capacity to traverse. And, you know, that would be, say, the right to free speech or the right to... Um, free public assembly, for example, the right to petition the government. And what these were really in the Bill of Rights and the First Ten Amendments effectively, the right to bear arms is another one that's very, you know, um, controversial some, in some ways. But effectively what it was was a way that um, the government recognised the rights of the citizen and the citizen had a claim against the government if their rights were ever traversed by the government. So I, I don't see it at all as a common law versus like a Bill of Rights thing. America are a common law country. They have a Bill of Rights. Uh, what we have in Australia is a constitution that we have seen uh, in the last kind of two and a half, three years uh, has been one that gives powers, uh, Section 51 being the kind of most important section of the constitution, giving powers to the federal government to make laws concerning a vast array of different areas. Uh, very um, few of the uh, provisions in the constitution actually relate to people and, and what a person can and can't be um, compelled to do or not to do. Uh, so we don't really have the recognition of the, the individual's rights in our constitution. And that's kind of where there might be some kind of argument um, between what we call like an, uh, like a, an amoral uh, constitution, which is just like a, this is a document that gives certain branches of government power, and then a Bill of Rights, which brings kind of the human element into it. And we, have, we don't have a wedding of those two things, whereas America does. But we're both common law countries. And then you've got like, say, like a third example, somewhere like New Zealand, that has a constitution um, and it has what's called a Bill of Rights, but it's largely a legislative act. It doesn't have um, the same force or the same uh, weight as if it were embedded in their constitution, or at least that's the theory. So a lot of um, Commonwealth or you know Commonwealth countries have to uh, change their constitutions via a referendum and it requires a really high percentage of support in the society that they're attempting to um, actually have a referendum in. Uh, that you need a lot of public support to change certain laws uh, in their constitution, whereas typically a non-enshrined Bill of Rights uh, doesn't require that. It's a, it's an act, a normal act of parliament that just says, you know, like we hypothetically really respect your rights and these are the things you can't do. But I would say that um, the New Zealand case uh, is probably showing that those kinds of Bill of Rights are actually not worth the paper they're written on, uh, whereas in America, depending on the state, um, by the look of it, it, it kind of broke down jurisdictionally. Some states were very pro um, the Bill of Rights and the actual respect of that. And I was talking, as I mentioned before, before we started, was um, to a couple in Texas today that, you know, said, hey, none of our rights were, were impinged by the government. We were allowed to do whatever we wanted, you know, freedom of passage. We didn't have to wear anything. We weren't compelled to do anything against our wishes. Um, whereas in other states, we know that not to be the case. And the last thing I'd say really quickly is just to put it all in perspective, a, a country like the United Kingdom, for example, doesn't have a formal constitution, but it has had acts of parliament that uh, act in a, in a way that kind of, when they're read together, gives you some form of um, constitution of the state. And a lot of people appeal to the Magna Carta as being the kind of 
first bill of rights and things and i encourage people to read it rather than disclaim it the magna carta does recognize certain um rights that you know there are uh, individuals other than the sovereign in the nation that can petition the king for certain things but it's not like a formal statement of rights like the bill of rights is in america and i think that when the uap were running um short of a constitutional referendum which i don't think judging by what we've all seen in the society most people don't think that there's been uh, an abuse of human rights in australia i mean most people think it's kind of okay so i think that um without the the kind of um the I'd say the society really being on board, you could never get it done via a referendum, getting a Bill of Rights in place. Um, so it would have probably been a legislative act. But depending on how the next three years goes and if truth comes out that I think probably the four, I can't speak for us all, but the four of us probably do think some some truth bombs are going to get dropped on society at large. And if those things turn out to, um, to be received by the populace at large, then potentially we'd be calling for a Bill of Rights to be actually uh, brought into our constitutional framework and not um, easy for a government to, in the future, just do away with. So, wow. So, Andrew, so I, I felt like that we were meant to be protected by the Constitution. Like, I thought we could always just fall back on the Constitution. I'm still reading, like, I'm no lawyer, man, so I'm I'm still reading it. So that's, it's like 40, I got a, a brief from Stephen and it's like 44 pages and I've read about 10. So, um, but it was like, um, so are you saying that really we have no leg to stand on as, citizens well we do have rights as citizens like we have rights uh and historically the common law has protected a number of those that relate to the human body you know like you, you can't be imprisoned without a charge like habeas corpus was a big deal in the united states you couldn't just arrest someone without a charge but you know what we've seen i think is just a um, an encroachment by the government into our lives in every way where our body is not our own anymore. Really, our thoughts, our speech certainly aren't our own anymore. And uh, what we're seeing is that the the deck is so stacked against citizens now against their governments because um, of the system we have, in my opinion, which is that it is extremely easy for a government to legislate because of the heads of powers that they've got, whether it's a state constitution or a federal constitution in this country, there are enormous um power is granted to the legislative body to make laws and because we live in a democracy that uh you know 51 percent can you know rule the other 49 or, or not even i mean look at what we just had in our federal government maybe less than one in three allegedly voted for the for the governing party and they're running like they had 100 percent of us that wanted to do these things you know they ran on zero policies literally i mean as far as i'm aware there wasn't a single policy that was ventilated and they've got 18 bills or something ready to go but what you're going to see is that a lot of these are to take away your freedom a lot of them relate to, you know, um, your you know, digital identity, your, your freedom online, and it's always for your own good and your safety. But it's just like a death of a thousand cuts for individuals in this yeah. country. In the old days, the common law preserved our right um, to do certain things. But when a government legislates, it's kind of called parliamentary supremacy, that if, if um, you know, the people have spoken, right, we, we all spoke in this election and voted in who we wanted, and now those people govern and they make laws that are so inhumane, so absurd, so contrary to like the the, the common good of good of Australia, um, and 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 totally, I mean, against national interests. But they've got the um, the imprimatur to do it because they were voted in by the populace. So the constitution is not to protect us in terms of protect individual rights. The the constitution effectively tells the government, whatever whether it's the executive arm, the legislative arm, or the judicial arm of the government, what the bounds of their powers are. 
and mm. they're discovering new ways to exercise that and it is in like it's so invasive into our lives but it's like a a, a tidal wave it's really hard to stop um but you know what you see in sri lanka or you see in these nations is that you know governments can do this for so long as people are being fed and they're being you know watered or whatever you want to call it like they are you know functioning but you know with cost of living and, and and what we're seeing at the moment is people will be starting to look at their governments with a different um i think a different lens and, and i think uh, our government has to be really careful because you know i think there's been a complete loss of trust in the media apparatus in this country i think there's going to be a serious uh, crisis of faith in respect of our um, universities and, and potentially healthcare professions and um you know i'm worried i mean the political system i think they're hanging by a thread i mean not many people voted for this labor government it doesn't matter how you look at no. it um and you know they're, they're governing like you know he was elected in some kind of landslide yeah. the guy takes off and you know i've spoken heaps no no um, but that's right yeah sorry rebecca yeah, so I'll just jump in. Um, Andrew, I, I familiarised myself with the Constitution only recently, like when we are going through what we are going through the last two and a half years. Um, mm. Obviously, reading it, I know there's parts that talk about us, you know, being able to cross borders um, interstate um, at any time without interruption or um, prevention. I know that there's parts that say we're protected from, you know, experimental, um, you know, medical experiments, dental experiments, things that we don't consent to. Um, there's also parts that talk about when there's a federal law and a state law that, you know, um, contradict one another, one another, the federal law um, supersedes it every time. So obviously we saw over the last two and a half years that that completely went out the window. I'm, my, I'm just curious to know how is it that, that, that this was able to sort of happen? How did this, how are they able to sidestep these things that are pretty obvious in the Constitution? Well, I think it, it really comes down to uh, the delegation of powers and how, pretty much every premier and our prime minister acted in concert. And um, there was no, uh, like, it's a shame, you know, for the populace's sake that Queensland weren't saying, why are you shutting our borders? Like, I mean, New South Wales and, and say the Northern Territory effectively destroyed their tourism industry. I mean, why didn't governments go out and fight for their people? And I think that that was the problem, is that it was being agitated by individuals that were fighting against you know the bureaucracy they were fighting against you know the bureaucratic science and the medical health professionals and it was so stacked so when i think judges heard these claims despite whether the claimant was right constitutionally or not for free passage for example between states um it was denied because again i think being in a democracy and we have these elected officials it was a real shame as well that palaszczuk won i think during the COVID period um because you know, you could have taken that as, you know, that it was a real kind of thumbs up to that um, draconian approach. And she was building a lot of those camps at the time and doing some wild stuff. Um, but sorry, I kind of get off track there. But in, in reality, uh, everything was done more or less under a single power in each state. And it was under the Public Health Act. Uh, effectively, it was that the minister could make any direction effectively if it would be deemed reasonable. And that word reasonable is a subjective term. And it's like, what's reasonable and if you have these kind of bedwetting people running around making <laughs> rules for everyone it would be reasonable to strap you know handcuff someone to your, your bed and not let them leave you know that's reasonable in, in in brad hazard's world however in most normal worlds where people need to feed a family or they need to do things like go out and exercise and get sunlight etc everything that was done was unreasonable and it was this mismatch of what the hell is reasonable and uh, unbelievably, the government prevailed and to the point where 
Um, quite literally, if you weren't willing to partake in, in an experiment, you were fired. And um, that's another just an absolute failure of our um, legislative drafters in terms of not making that a protected class of person under our um, effectively workplace discrimination acts. I mean, you know, you can't be fired for, say, religious discrimination or discrimination based on your gender, for example, or your sex or whatever they want to call it now. Um, but you could be based effectively on your medical status. And if you were deemed to be a threat, even though more or less every peer-reviewed paper in the world confirmed that you were less of a threat than anyone if you had natural immunity, that you would be um, excluded from the workplace. And I would say this was, um, I mean, it would be generous to say it was the most grossly incompetent period of Australian bureaucracy. Uh, I have a feeling, though, that it was more pernicious than just mere negligence or um, oversight. I think that there was a systemic... Um, pushed by the government to effectively destroy our middle class. I mean, to stop us from working and um, printing money like they did, and we're all going to reap what the government have sowed. I mean, I wish there was an opt-out function for uh, inflation, you know, or there was an opt-out, like you didn't let me go and shop um, because I wouldn't comply with certain things. I wish that I didn't have to now pay the the tax of inflation that um, I'm being subject to. And um, that's the saddest thing for me is that, um, this is only the beginning, and I think that a lot of people think that, you know, that inflation's done and we're just kind of back to business as usual now. Um, I, you know, there'll be a, it'll either be stag or hyperinflation. It's one or the other. I think, you know, I think it could be hyperinflation. And uh, our government have sown it and we're going to reap it in a way that most, I mean, I'm, I'm too young to have ever seen it. Apparently, you know, 1970s people uh, that lived through that have, have experienced this kind of thing before, but it's going to be violent, I suspect, and uh, I'm not looking forward to what's coming. Andrew, um, it's very in interesting, the interpretation, the word interpretation. So um, why is it that um, it, it actually scares me that rules like what they've done, like um, through the public health orders, um, mm -hmm. that they utilised, they interpreted it a certain way and then just took and took over. Um, is it like, is that like... Um, I'm sorry, I'm a bit lost for words because we're all emotional about this particular topic because all yeah, of us, yeah. all of us in one in one way or another, pretty much ran because of what happened, um, you know, over the last couple of years, right? Be it for mm. I know for Stephen, it's you know because he wants his daughter to 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 um, grow up in an Australia that he had or better than. Um, mm. For me, um, my wife lost her nursing career mm. um, that she worked very very hard for and and actually. Um, she 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 changed her life and became a nurse, um, mm. and then now she's told that she cannot can no longer be a nurse. Um, you know, Rebecca as well. You know, she's got her family and she wants her children to you know grow up in a better Australia. Me too with our my kids. But um, so it scares me to to it scares me that such an important document such as the Constitution and and our rights and the people's rights are left open to such vague interpretation is mm. is that is that am i right in saying that well I, I think it's i mean the proof's kind of in the pudding unfortunately the um some words are deliberately ambiguous uh, to allow flexibility for decision makers because you know there are presumably some kinds of health emergencies where extraordinary actions have to be taken and you can't possibly legislate for the i mean i draft wills that have you know all kinds of um, complexities embedded because you don't know what's going to happen in the future. Order of deaths, people dying at different ages overseas, all kinds of things. 
So you just always want to leave it so it's kind of flexible that whoever needs to make a decision in the future can do so. Um, so I understand the need for, you know, some ambiguity in terms of, um, you know, in terms of wording in, in, a, in a document. However, I can't believe that every single chief health officer in the world acted in the same way that was so contrary to common sense and every judge seemingly in the common law world, so I call that the five eyes, you know, you've got the United States, you've got Canada, United Kingdom, New Zealand and Australia, how all of them just acted in the same way to turn on the money printer nonstop, shut the middle class down. Everyone, I mean, sorry about that. When I say destroy the middle class, I mean all of us were affected. Um, but, you know, um, in my opinion, there will be a rich and a poor coming out of this whole thing. And if, you know, unless you're getting tips from the federal government in America, potentially where you're going to invest your money or what, what uh, stocks are going to do well, you're going to be in the bottom, you're going to be in the bottom 99.9%. So it's I very that, much, it's, sorry, mate. It's very much a hunger game situation. That's what, I mean, I felt, I, I felt that I'm a bit of a movie buff kind of thing. And it felt like a bit of a hunger games kind of situation. It feels like it's, it was like if you did a, um, a prequel to the first hunger games, this is kind of like what happened. I haven't, um, I haven't seen The Hunger Games, but I, I think I understand the premise. Um, but my understanding is that, you know, it's kind of like what there's like a rich class and they make the poor people fight it out. I mean, this is a tale as old as time. Like a human blood sport is kind of, I think, where a really degraded society will go. I think the Romans did it. Um, you know, I know that pretty much every culture in history is, have, have done it at some point in time. And um, I, I believe that history is very cyclical and I believe that, uh, there are people who have, you know, a lust for power and a lust for money, and they would be willing to do anything in, in order to attain it and sustain that. And I think what we're going to see, and I, I really do hope one day that there is justice, and I believe there will be. Um, but I think these people that have um, made decisions uh, against, you know, good conscience, uh, they should be held to be accountable. You know, I think they should be held accountable in the future. So I don't know if it was Hunger Games per se, but there was definitely an element of you know, this is how you will live. Like you will stay at home and you will do X and you will do Y. Uh, but this other rule set apply to them. I mean, if it was honestly necessary for Gladys Berejiklian to tell us with a media scrum every single day how dangerous mm -hmm. it was out there. And for me, it reminded me of that movie. If you want to go into movies, it's, uh, I think it's called um, The Village by M. Night Shamanam, whatever his name is. Uh, Crap movie. Okay. But the, the premise is that pretty much like they scare these people to stay in the village and ultimately it's these like geriatrics or geezers that are patrolling the uh, the kind of the woods. And like this is meant to be a, like an international health crisis and you have some of the biggest gimps on the planet every day getting together, you know, whoa, we're going to talk about how dangerous this is. Too dangerous for you guys. Don't even think about coming outside. We'll, we'll handle it. And, um, you know, I just I think most people, uh, understand that that was just the most outrageous hypocrisy. And, um, you know, I think it's really scarred people, whether they know it yet or not. And I think that, um, you know, the cognitive, the cognitive dissonance is there at the moment. But I do believe that that will fade and slowly that will become anger towards these people that have um, effectively stolen your, your savings. They've stolen your equity in the properties that you guys have worked hard to buy if you can, if you're that lucky. Uh, and uh, your purchasing power is gone and it's all to stay in power and it's all to... Uh, increase the wealth of a few at the expense of the masses. So I'm, I'm very, very disappointed. And um, to say that uh, the economic 
mismanagement that's occurred over the last three years has been extreme is an understatement. I mean, to think, though, that every government in the world did this uh, at the mm-hmm. expense of their populations, it just, it just it, it beggars belief, and we're about to start really seriously paying for that. And to think that people actually took health advice from Kerry Chan. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> or Tedros, you know. I mean, it, it's so ludicrous, quite literally, uh, when you look around the world and, and see these people I mean, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was a, a comedy, like some kind of, you know, Adam Sandler movie where he's playing all the characters and deliberately, you know, making a mockery of us and our intelligence and, uh, you know, just the flipping and flopping between the efficacy of masks. Even that alone, I think, would be enough. Um, when you start looking at that and it compounds with, with, with stuff that genuinely was, was really hurting people in real life, um, it's really sad, actually. Like, I think, um, you know, as a lawyer, I, I probably acted for 40 or 50 families where... Um, individuals lost their job. You know, um, my wife and I, we run a church and I'd say probably 60% of our families lost at least one breadwinner in their family. That's callous when you have a government that are willing to not let people feed their children legitimately. Um, Like I I figure this, if you're in power and you're willing to let a sizable percentage of your population literally not eat, not qualify for welfare, and you just don't even care, um, there's not much you wouldn't do. And I, I suspect uh, this guy called Heinrich Heine, he was a German poet, he said, where books burn, people burn next. And I kind of feel like the trajectory is similar. In a government or a country where you're willing to stop people from eating and stop people from working, just for, even from just a purpose point of view, it, it is so sick and so um, it's so inhumane. Like it doesn't feel like the origin of that is human to me. And I think that... Um, I think a lot of people are going to be looking very uh, cynically at the whole political system going forward. And, you know, why I said at the start, you know, I hope we have a bright future for both of our parties is that, you know, I believe that there'll be voters deserting the established parties or the, I mean, you guys have been around for a lot longer than we have, but I um, I wouldn't want to be seen in public taking a how to vote for these people, or I wouldn't want to be seen in public, uh, you know, helping them out because of what they have allowed to occur and what they've done to our ordinary citizens in this country. I think it's horrific. Well, we talk, we talk sorry, Adam. Um, you talk about like you know people losing their jobs. Like I went through that, and just the mental anguish that comes along with that is not is not uh, fully recognised. Like some of these people have really been through hell, and mm. their stories are not told. To to jump into a, like a hypothetical sort of uh, you know a landscape or view, if the UAP had won the election and and brought in a, a bill of rights, how would that have protected against uh, these public health orders? Well, I think the, the answer to that question really, um, it's hard to know in the long run because really a government is extremely powerful and I'm not talking about you know necessarily arming the populace, but against an unarmed population, there is nothing you can do. There is actually no recourse. Um, if, you, if your government are unjust, uh, there is no way to make a government act in accordance with their laws. We saw the rankest forms of hypocrisy uh, in the last two and a half years. So, I mean, there's nothing in and of itself in a document that you pass that can actually um, ensure compliance with the words of a text. And I think the Americans should be more upset than we are in that respect. I mean, they literally fought a war to bring the Bill of Rights into existence. And it's literally like clearly stated on a piece of paper. You can read it and be like, why is our government trashing this document every day that it exists. In Australia, it would be hard. We wouldn't have that kind of common, you know, like we have like our Anzac kind of story that this country was forged out of hardship. It wasn't like the people that are rewriting history now, it's like it was the beach, you know, we rocked up at Bondi on a plane and, you know, there we were and we just kicked people out of this country. It was like 
Mate, most people who have, you know, a history in Australia, their families were sent here in the most unbelievable. Read about the first fleet in particular. Read about the second fleet in terms of the conditions that these people face to come here. Sent from the other side of the world, a penal colony. Like, people are insane. But anyways, I, I digress. What I was going to say is the this country doesn't have that kind of, like, we've really forged our identity around a Bill of Rights. You know, I think that we'd need a lot more to go wrong in this country uh, in order for us to really rally around it, 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 that it has a central part of our kind of, um, our, our, you know, our country's psyche. So I don't know what it would do in the long run because we wouldn't have that connection with some really, really um, entrenched document to our hearts and to our minds. But I do think that if the UAP had been elected, that the individuals that were elected would have done everything in their power to uphold the wording of any form of Bill of Rights, whatever the iteration was, um, we would uphold the words of those texts. Because what I was going to say, just on the back of what you were saying before, Steve, is that people don't understand the, the mental anguish that losing your job caused. But I really think the government underestimated that kind of exposing this many people to, you know, collectively the crucible at the same time has refined, you know, tens of thousands of Australians to the point where, like, the government can't really throw anything else at us. Like we ran as candidates knowing that we would face hostility, ridicule. Um, and I think honestly, like there is like a really kind of, I'm not talking it up, but there is a, a tough individual now that is out there in society that was probably a bit, you know, kind of flabby, so to speak. You know, we were kind of just like, whatever, just give me my sport yeah. and just chill out. I mean, I just wanted the government yeah. out of my life. Yeah. Uh, I, I think like what I said in my, um, I think in the early part of my campaign was, you know, that Gladys Berejiklian created me. I was a very happy father of two, running a church with my wife, lawyer in Sydney, you know, university studying, reading, writing books, doing my thing. And and the government rocked up in my house, you know, and they're telling me what I can and can't do and I can't have people over and I can't do X, I can't do Y. All the while when you're knowing that, that this is something that um, that doesn't warrant this kind, of, um, this kind of response. So what I would say is in the long run, um, if they are electing people um, from the UAP or, you know, I trust for One Nation as well, that, that these guys have um, a backbone, that they're not, uh, you know, what we call like a pussy back in the day, like they're not going to just cop it. You know, we're going to stand up for, for what we believe is right. And, uh, and I actually think whether they like it or not uh, or whether people can see it, yeah, because I think this, this three years of government, I'm actually really thankful I'm not there because I think this will be unparalleled in Australia for the creation of human misery, I have to be honest. I wouldn't want to be a teal at the, the ballot box in the next election because their policies are effectively going to bankrupt this country. Um, yeah. And I think people are going to be angry about that. And I don't want to be there. And I think when the truth starts coming out about some of the um, stuff that we're all well aware of and we can't really talk about online, there's going to be hell to pay, I suspect. It won't be from people like us. I mean, we didn't comply. We didn't um, We didn't partake in their little game. Uh, it'll be people that have, have lost loved ones and been affected by it. And um, anyway, so I think... To answer the question, yeah, I really do think the UAP um, people that I know, uh, if they were elected, would have upheld a Bill of Rights and upheld, uh, I think, the Australian uh, Constitution, which is just to to actually give us a framework to run a fruitful and industrious country. And, you know, I look forward to the future because I know that one thing I like, lies, you know, they need propaganda, they need censorship to flourish and, you know, um, we're waking up to it. And I think a lot of people now are really hungry for the truth and, you know, our side of this is growing every single day. No one's leaving from our side to go to the other side, you know. It's and people need to time. remember we've got a state election coming up in less than 12 months. So we're looking at like we're going to be a red state as well. Um, so obviously people, I'm not, I'm not sure if UAPs are running for state um, under the impression at this point in time they're not. 
however one nation is, and I think you just need to look at the leader of that party being Mark Latham. Uh, he's not afraid to say what he feels and what is right. So I think people have an opportunity to sort of, you know, really reflect on, you know, what's what we've experienced and what, what we can do within the next 12 months. And then, as you're saying, three years' time, you know, um, show up at the at the polling um, booths and give them a piece of your mind. Yeah, and I really do encourage um, One Nation in because um, at the UAP can't contest. We did. We don't have a party registered in New South Wales for the purpose of the election. But I think there's such an there's this kind of um, Australian kind of federal centric approach to politics that they they underestimate the power of the local council. They underestimate the power of the state election. I mean, th these are very, very, very ideologically left um, institutions. I mean, the Liberal Party have just allowed Matt Keane to be their deputy leader, who I honestly think is probably the most um, left-wing politician in the country. Um, I, I, I shudder when I think about the state of the Liberal Party quite seriously. Um, but, you know, it's so important to know that nearly every one of the decisions that impacted on us negatively in the last two and a half years was perpetrated at a state level. Um, yeah. To vote in a Labor government here, I'm not saying that you know that'd be necessarily worse than the than the Liberal Party because it was very very bad. I mean Dan Andrews probably was worse than Gladys, um, and Mark Gunner up in Northern Territory, he, he seems like he's I don't know if he's on this planet. I mean there are some I can't I can't actually believe that out of, <laughs> in our six states and two ter territories we and I, I guess Norfolk as well, but I cannot believe that 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 was the group that led us through that. I mean honestly like you couldn't have scripted it a, a, a class like that if you tried i mean that was something they were in a race to outdo each other i think in cruelty and um poor decision making i mean that, that this people will write about this for the, for the rest of history i mean this is what a period of time i think the last thing um anyway is that i think the people are going to have to realize and they're going to have to actually really pay attention to what happened in other states because we were a liberal run state or we are a liberal run state and if you had a look, um, you're right, in Victoria, they had the most severe lockdowns in the whole world. Mm. And um, I think people are going to have to realise that um, in the state election, it's very important to what who they're going to vote for because, as a matter of fact, One Nation as it stands, because we are running, um, is going to be the last line in the, stand, in the sand to give people any sort of protection. If they liked the way Australia was five years ago, one Nation are, the, were, are actually the only kind of party who are standing up for that kind of um, institution in Australia. So what happens is, um, yeah, yeah we're, we're conservative. Um, mm. We're not saying that you can't be gay. We're not saying that you can't be trans. We're saying leave our kids alone. Um, but what we are saying is that, you know, if you liked the good old Australian way, that this could be the potentially the last time for the next two years after March next year, that you that you will even have a chance to have somebody in your corner if, mm -hmm. if, if, if once labor get in and there's no one to balance power in new south wales i think i i i, I see not good things happening on the horizon i don't think anyone is optimistic about a, a labor government um it would be one of those elections i you know who do you, who do you hate less i think that'll mm -hmm. that'll be it but unfortunately uh I think a lot of the talking points will be, you know, federal issues, you know, like inflation, cost of living, um, kind of our, I think our foreign policy will be in the news again soon if, um, if, if the Eastern Asian commentators are right and things start heating up there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, I really do hope that um, people in New South Wales understand, you know, that, that 
I think the future of our state is is very important and, and the decisions that governments at the state level make really impact every facet of our lives. And, um, you know, I, I think that Dan Andrews was probably the worst premier in the country, judging purely by human flow of, of people. I mean, I think my understanding is they lost about 60,000 individuals, adults, moving out of the state. I mean, that's, that is so catastrophic to your economy and... Um, you know, that, think about your housing prices. I mean, if there aren't that, those people bidding in the future, I mean, it, I mean, he, he probably has has wiped off. I would say, you know, tens, if not, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars from uh, the asset values in in Victoria because you need to be impaired cognitively, I think, to want to move to Victoria at this stage, uh, and that's hugely important for for people that have interests down there. And um, you know, Queensland, I think, were the beneficiaries of um, kind of the harsh lockdowns in Sydney and, and in, in Melbourne. Like I know that when it came time to get in touch with my members, you know, probably like 10 or 15%, it was not an insignificant amount of the members from Moringa had moved north. They're like, well, I'm out, you know. And yeah. uh, I think, you know, the the population shift as a result of the insanity that we've seen. Um, you know, I think it's just the start of that. Uh, I think this has planted a seed in a lot of people's minds and in their hearts um, that, you know, maybe city living isn't for me. Like I work in North Sydney at the moment and man, the um, surveillance equipment that I'm seeing being rolled out, I'm kind of like, well, what's next? Like what is next? I mean, do they just want to put a barcode on me or, or you know, and I, I mean, it's making my life very uncomfortable, not like anything to hide. I just, I am, the government are paranoid and they probably should be, not because of people like me, but um, a lot of people don't like them and uh, a lot of people will vote them out and, you know, I just think it's disgusting what's happening in this country. We're losing our freedom. And there's, uh, we were talking before about, um, you know, how do you stop this stuff? I mean, how do you stop the installation of security devices for our safety? You know what I mean? It's it's like it's, you can't win. You can't win. Well, funnily enough that you mentioned that, Andrew, because I, I, first time ever have I really paid a lot of attention to home security. So the home's all the houses around my area, I'm, I'm from Campbelltown, so I'm in the MacArthur region. Mm -hmm. Most of the homes now have surveillance cameras around their house. Mm -hmm. So I have surveillance cameras around my house as well because people were trying to steal my cars and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I refuse to connect it to the internet. So it's a closed circuit. circuit. I, I have to review footage at home on a hard drive. It's not connected. So no one can access it. Mm -hmm. So, um, But I've noticed now that even that they've scared people into believing that cameras work. And now I know up the street, up my street, all the houses have cameras on them. If they're connected to the internet, in essence, um, what's stopping a government agency from tapping into that signal and actually having surveillance in your suburb? Not, not, not just in city environment. And, you know, now they it can infiltrate suburbia as well. Well, I think the, the worst part about... Um all of our technology today effectively is that we're opting in to a system of control. Um, power is so centralised in a few companies and they're brainwashing the public to think that privacy is important to them and it's protected, but they'll have a few show trials where they're like, oh, Apple won't give the ID, you know, for a drug yeah. dealer's phone and stuff. It's like if people believe that surveillance is um, not prevalent or pervasive, then, you know, good luck to them. But I, I'm with you. Most people are opting into this system and um, they're, they're actually the ones that are giving uh, big tech their data. It's, there's no such thing as a free lunch, literally. And uh, someone always pays and, and, and people pay um, for these free applications. And 
you know, the, the thing that bothers me is that, um, you know, you can know that you're on a platform uh, that is controlled by a government uh, from another nation that's hostile to our country and, and people, the uptake is, is it's uninhibited by that uh, knowledge. You know, I found it very interesting after our election, uh, the Australian Financial Review wrote an article about how um, Tom Rogers, who was the Australian Electoral Commissioner, combated disinformation online and won. And he boasted about uh, the AEC taking notes from WeChat in China. And, you know, I like it beggars belief. I Honestly, I feel like it's like the bizarro world. Could you actually imagine that during the Cold War, getting back from a diplomatic mission to the Kremlin, boasting that they've secured our elections, the Soviets, this is the biggest breakthrough in election integrity. Uh, but where, where do you start? Where do you start in this country? And I'm very mindful of what I can and can't talk about. But um, in Australia, we have no capacity to criticise certain agencies in this country. And that's what we don't hear reported because every operation is past, present, ongoing. Uh, and it's a threat to national security for you to report on that. So we are living in just this little box. We can't talk about what's actually happening to this country. And it's just how people like it. And I'm very hesitant to talk about this generally, but people should be aware about um, some of the um, apparatuses that exist in Australia and um, overthrowing or, you know, um, you know, voting them out would be very, 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 very difficult if, if possible at all. And, um, you know, I, 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 I worry about the future of this country. Very, very serious concerns yeah. about it. Absolutely serious concerns, 100%. I just wanted to ask Andrew well, what his thoughts were um, with the COVID safe app being dumped. Um, in the, it was in the headlines the last yeah. couple of days saying yeah. that it was only six or seven million people actually like downloaded it and used it and it was 17 COVID cases or something came from the program. Just was it to, in New South Wales or was it? Um... This was a nationwide, uh, this was a federal government incentive, the COVID safe app where it was going to ping you and tell you if you'd walk past someone in the supermarket who'd tested positive for COVID. Well, the scary, I think the scary thing is the, what, what it indicates that there are people, even 17 in this country that are willing or however many people took up on this thing that are mm -hmm. willing to, to share that kind of information with their government. Uh, it is so fundamentally different to how I view the government. Um, they, these people want a babysitter. They, they would probably ask for this stuff in their, in their bedroom. I suspect, well, I mean, people do. Uh, yeah. people are very scared and I think they're being, you know, mollycoddled into this kind of they need big daddy to, to help them. They need the government to hand out stuff, you know. Like I think if you're you know, potentially like in my, in my world, like I mean I don't I can't take anything from the government. I don't I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't qualify for anything and uh, that's a decision because, you know, uh, I, I don't want to be owned by them and, uh, you know, we used to be free people in a free country and, and you know, these apps – they surveil you, uh, literally. I mean, they tell you if you're near someone who allegedly has uh, this this thing that, you know, people keep talking about and, like, I can't believe it. But, I, you know, I just can't believe how many people have drunk the Kool-Aid and they think that, that this is an appropriate response. I mean, most people have had it. Some people have had it twice, three times. Um, imagine treating a common cold like this. I mean, you would be admitted uh, to some kind of institution as a hypochondriac, definitionally. And... Um, <laughs> That's what we've gotten to as a society where that is actually praised as being responsible and that's praised as a noble thing to do is to, you know, protect your, you know, compatriots by, you know, isolating and not working for a week or so. I mean, like I remember, 
I, I catch the bus to work and like I would see people back in 2019, 2018, you know, from since I worked, you know, they would be sick as a dog, you know, like they'd properly have the flu and they'd be sitting there like boom, like sneezing and coughing and stuff. And you'd be like, mate, what is wrong with you? Like uh-huh. you were so unwell. But that was, that was literally the going rate. And that was, I work in a small business, you know, and if you didn't go to work because you had a tickle in your throat or you were next to someone who had a cold, you'd be fired quite literally, I think. Literally and, um, fired. Yeah, for real. If I came in or if I called the office and said, I was at a party on Sunday night and there were about 200 people there and one of the waiters or something like that has a cold, honestly, <laughs> you'd be, I reckon for real they would be like, well, you've shown us your true colours. You're, uh, you're a coward. Like I don't want you in my, in my business. And you're I think out. that the worst part about what we're seeing is that as a society um, we're tolerating and supporting the media, unfortunately, to the point where they can – ram this stuff down your throat uh, to make you think that you're somehow weird by um, thinking that kind of behavior shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't be celebrated. And I think that, you know, we have to remember that ultimately we are a capitalist country and that money makes the world kind of go around. And I do think that abstaining from things that it might be costly and it might come at a cost to you originally, but the more people that abstain from, uh, these media outlets that are pushing the fear and, and I mean, I know they're getting paid a lot by the government, so it's hard because they kind of backdoor it. You know, they'll take taxpayer money and then inject it in in the form of tax cuts and all kinds of crazy incentives for these media agencies. But, you know, it's hard because it's like you, you don't want to also bite the hand that feeds you. Like, well, I'm sure this podcast will be on some kind of platform that is part of this system. Yeah, so it's hard. Absolutely. But um, the good thing is I hope that there – one thing I'd say really quickly on this is that I've met some incredibly entrepreneurial people as a result of this movement that's happening. Mm. And these are not you guys that are kind of your, your sooks that, you know, like don't want to work and, you know, just want a free ride. These guys are entrepreneurial. They're brave. Um, they'll take a risk. And we've been forced together in this kind of group. And um, I – like there are epochs of invention. There are epochs of, you know, greatness, I think, in societies. And I honestly believe that um, – what I mentioned before is happening, that there is this concentration of really amazing people um, that are going to produce things because we've, we've kind of all had the kind of the, the, the fear knocked out of us in lots of ways. Like fear of failure, like start a business, you fail. It's exactly where you were when you lost your job because you wouldn't comply with the mandate. It's like you're not – like we kind of it, – it's like you've faced your fear. It doesn't get much worse on the other side. Um, so I kind of think that – you know, a lot of uh, there's going to be incredible innovation in this, and I think an incredible, almost parallel ecosystem will develop um, where we, we don't need to rely on this crap anymore, and that we we have people wanting the truth, and that is so powerful. People are so hungry for the truth, and they're being lied to from cradle to grave in this country. And I think that um, there's so many opportunities for us to get messages like this. It might uh, this might resonate with people. They might you know like this content and share it, and you know might encourage spin-offs or it might give you guys an enormous platform an enormous voice into people's living rooms in their homes and you can really transform lives with people hope and um and, and actually embolden people to to take back some of their freedom because um really we, we are collective animals humans are um very very swayed by by what the, the masses are doing and i think the more that are emboldened and the more that they see us kind of swarming and moving together they understand that there's a movement out there and that, that these are the guys that I want to kind of, you know, hitch my wagon to. So I just encourage you guys to keep going with it all. Thanks, Andrew. And Andrew, I was just going to say, I picked up on your entrepreneurial point. I have a, um, a very awesome volunteer that has helped me with my campaign and hopefully will help me with my next one. Um, and he's been, so he was a teacher and um, 
it's for a long time at a very very prominent school and um when I, I rang him the other day and i said oh mate you know i need you to, i'm going to need you for the next campaign if i get selected you know if i get selected it's not mm. not not special um and um you know what what can you do and he goes mate mate i've been so busy and all he's been doing he's been going out to all the local he's big on this idea and i'm actually going to get him involved in life as well um mm. the discussion group but he's been partitioning all the local farmers around my area because we're a bit rural as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, especially um, Rebecca's area down in Hume there. Mm -hmm. He's gone to local farmers. He's gone to, the you know, um, you know, piggeries and all this kind of stuff. And he's just trying to create this community because he believes, um, and he's from South Africa, so they've seen a lot of mm -hmm. attrition, you know. And Australians never see. Funnily enough, most of my support group was were, were are South Africans or from um, other countries because they, Australians have never seen attrition like they like they have seen. They've left their countries and come here, and now they see our country going like that. I've had mm -hmm. I've been yelled at by saying medical apartheid. I've been, I've had I've had lawyers say, but apartheid's for race and blah blah blah. And I said, well. It's medical apartheid because we're separating, you know, based on a status of this and that. And maybe the mm. word's not quite right, but that's the best thing I could come up with at the time. Um, mm. But, yeah, so, but um, you know, the entrepreneurial thing is, and that's the Australian spirit, and it doesn't you don't need to be born here and you don't need to be of English descent to have entrepreneurial spirit and have Australian guts. So um, what happens is he's been out and he's gone, Adam, I've, since I've left, since because he got sacked, he goes, I've, um, I've been so busy. So, um, you know, he's been trying to create this community and I think actually, funnily enough, just given life discussion group a bit of blood as well, I think mm. that's going to be a great platform as well for people like-minded where they've got a community mm. to speak to. And, um, you know, and it's just, you know, that entrepreneurial thing was really good. I do see, I do think that a lot's going to come out of it, out of, out of what we've been through. Mm. It's making people actually reach out to each other. They tried to lock us down. And then we've gotten out of it now and, and, and people are reaching out to a lot of people. I, I, I speak to more people now than I ever used to speak to before. Oh, and the breadth of uh, conversation is enormous. It's not just a few, you know, disparate electorates in Sydney that are talking about this. It's it's a national issue. And, you know, we'll, there'll be connections forming uh, between the bush, between the city. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing people taking an interest in, in things that were so on the, you know, the forgotten and unloved pile, you know. Um, I know that... Steve's a guy that's in, interested in silver, for example, and, you know, there's there's interest in, in, in money all of a sudden. Like, when was that going to happen? I mean, libertarian ideals, uh, you know, I think there's been this real, uh, this kind of um, revitalization of people's faith lives as well in Australia. I mean, people are looking yep. at what's really important. I believe mm. that people will be better fathers and mothers now as a result of it. I mean, we've seen the importance of family, community, um, and people use the word like-minded, but really it's kind of, a um you know it's almost like a tribal concept in some respects it's like you know these guys it's like i know i know if you're probably like me you'll go to a barbecue sometimes and when you go to a function and you're talking to these people and you're like my goodness we are on like different planets and they think we're nuts right but um we've all been there at one stage you know something woke us up but um you know and then you come and meet someone on the other side and you're like oh man like far out we can talk you know like, let's go for broke and, um, and I think there's a lot of people like that that are finding um, really meaningful relations, or, you know, and I, I was obsessed with sport, you know, like obsessed with it. And, you know, back in the day, I'm in drinking culture and things like that, all these things that were so fickle and vain. And 
Um, I do think that there's kind of a maturing of our culture. And I think that um, we've been kept in adolescence by our government for a really long time. And, you know, I, I would be shocked if, you know, there was a straw poll done of people in the kind of freedom movement. If, you know, certain things that were probably destructive and time-wasting haven't been purged from their lives, you know, like binge-watching television, you know, playing video games, hitting the turps the whole time, you know, just, you know, ingesting sport relentlessly. Because once you realise that that's a distraction to stop you from actually achieving whatever your calling is, whatever your purpose is, uh, it's it's like it's shocking. So I think that it's an incredibly motivated community. You're going to see a lot of interest in and around health and food um, and also, you know, like distribution networks. I mean, I think people are considering ethically how they shop for the first time, you know, like why would I keep uh, going to a place that if it was up to them, they wouldn't serve me. You know, that's a big contemplation for a lot of people and, you know, I, I really am praying and hoping that um, that there's a real resurgence of, uh, you know, green grocers in Australia and, you know, distribution networks that, I mean, we should have the freshest crops in the world. And like, you know, it's caused yeah. my wife and I to contemplate going organic. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm seeing how organic apples go off or, you know, you know, that celery doesn't necessarily come, you know, wrapped in cling wrap and that it gets like, it, it dies in a different way to what I'm seeing in the supermarket yeah. stuff. And, you know, strawberries going off like they used to, you know, like, it's kind of like a time machine, you know, eating in a time machine, you know, and this has happened in my lifetime. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm starting to witness that just the, um, how seamless it's been, uh, the severing of individuals from land and from production. And, you know, I think a big one as well that we're going to all be looking at probably whether you've got children. I know that you've got little ones, um, Steve, and, and well, Steve's at least got one little one. We got, we got kids to contemplate, you know, how do we want to educate these uh, little ones in the future? And I mean, do I want to send them to an institution that I know they're getting brainwashed with, uh, mm. with stuff that is just crazy? And uh, so anyway, look, it's just the start. And I honestly think that this uh, three-year parliamentary period will be like none in Australian history. Yeah. Uh, I think um, we'll be ostracised, I suspect, in the international arena because there will be changes, I suspect, in our allies' governments before ours. And I think we'll be that kind of, um, you know, I, I reckon there'll be uh, people will begin to be voting almost in, in, in probably six months to vote this mob out. And uh, we're going to have to wait for a couple of years where they, they do some pretty crazy stuff. But, um, you know, if you're a big commodities guy or if you like investing, I think there's some incredible opportunities between now and then. And I think it's about just getting your house in order, like really making good decisions for your own family at the moment. I'd say we kind of know what's really going on in terms of the things that are coming for society and you can prepare based on what you think is true. And, um, you know, I mentioned one before, I mean, Steve and I are looking at money and, and, and sound money and I think we're on the right side of a price ceiling um, in, in, in respect of some of those precious metals. So, you know, I would really be encouraging people to start thinking about money and savings and inflation and how, you know, you can protect yourselves against these things. And, you know, people would often say that, silver is a hedge against inflation. I think it really it's a hedge against government. Um, I want people to know that there are some incredible platforms out there that can, you know, um, enliven precious metals as you're holding them and you can use them and uh, you can you can actually spend off the back of them. So really, I, I hope that as a community that there are some really prudent people out there that are uh, showing some, some things financially to help people out because it's going to be a tough couple of years. Our wages are not going to grow in a fashion that's commensurate with inflation. So, um you know, make good decisions, work together. And, uh, and I do think that there'll be an interest again, a revived interest in history where we look at um, communities that formed in a bigger picture place. So like, you know, I'd encourage people to read, say the history of Quakerism uh, in the United Kingdom, 
they were persecuted beyond belief because they wouldn't swear an oath to the Queen. And William Penn was sent to America and he started Pennsylvania. And, like, who would have thought? You know, don't think that um, only exceptional things happen in the past uh, when motivated people who have been persecuted come together. And I'm not saying it was the worst persecution in history. I'll probably get lambasted by some people using the P word in relation to what we've been through. But I mean, quite seriously, like persecuted <clears throat> to the point where we had to change the trajectory of our lives. All right. So we'll just shift gears a little bit because I know that you're a Christian man. You even have your own little church, uh, which I've been to, and it's uh, really tremendous. But after seeing everything that's even in Moringa here with the uh, the Manly Sea Eagles and the Manly Seven, uh, and the and kind of like the demonization of especially Christianity, do you feel free uh, speaking about your Christianity in public uh, as much as you would have maybe in the past? And I know Christian people are pretty fearless, but uh, do you definitely feel the pressure on you to be able to speak freely about your Christianity? Look, I. I don't, um, I don't feel like I'm persecuted insofar as, you know, like I can't speak about these things. I mean, I think it's all about being wise sometimes and about choosing your battles. Like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm careful about, um, you know, where I speak and what I speak about. But what the truth is, is it's, this has been happening for a really long time and a lot of censorship is actually done by the individual. You know, a lot of it is self-censorship and, you know, for years people have been avoiding you know, religious debates and, um, you know, talking about religion or politics at parties and things. And that was the going rate. You guys would know the adage, you know, you can't talk about politics or religion. And they're kind of two of the things that matter most to people. And I think that the removal of that from society, I think, has really, um, it stopped, I think it's really um, stunted the growth of a lot of people because we are, whether people like it or not, we are spiritual beings. We have, you know, I believe 99% of people believe that when they're young and when they're growing up and a lot of it can be beaten out of you and you can trade that for, for different belief systems. But to pretend that people aren't spiritual is a lie and to pretend that people aren't political is a lie. And if you can't talk about those things, you often can't relate on some of the stuff that's most important to people. So for me, the manly <clears throat> situation was just, um, it wasn't as bad as the, I think the treatment of, um, so Israel Folau in that he lost his job for, for quoting something on, on a social media platform. And I'll never forget what Peter Beattie, who was the then, uh, I think he was the chairman of NRL, came out and said, you know, we're an inclusive game and, and that's why we've decided to exclude Israel Folau. And I just remember the, you know, the deafening silence of the kind of church at large and even just society at large, you know. Like I, um, I, I think for me it just showed a lot of hypocrisy uh, in society and in our media. There are kind of... Um, <clears throat> things that you can't address and cultures that you can't address. I know that we've had athletes that have abstained from wearing, you know, you know, alcohol um, advertisements before. And, you know, a similar issue I think happened with the pride jersey in the um, women's AFL. And, you know, that was lauded as, um, you know, bravery. And and, and I, I don't know. I just think for me, you, I, I mean, I, I want less and less to do with that world, you know, that world with the media and the mainstream and, you know, but I do know that it's harder for, for people to profess a Christian faith without um, facing ridicule and scorn. But um, <clears throat> it's hard because, I mean, we live in a world where a lot of political ideals are treated like that, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you get banned for, for, for sharing an article from Nature Journal, you know, like the highest kind of authority or seemingly the highest authority in, in the kind of the realm of, of, of science, medicine and physiology. So, you know, I, I don't know, I kind of... It's just it's just a symptom of our time, and um, the problem is that that our enemies ideologically, I'd call them the left, and I think it's a shame we've let socialist or communist fall from our vernacular. But 
I think that's what they are. I really do think that they are communists and um, they want a godless populace um, and they want um, people who, who are fearing the state without them having to act. And I think that's kind of where self-censorship is so scary and that, um, you know, a lot of NRL players believe, I believe, uh, in, in God and they believe that, um, you know, some of them would have thought that, that having to wear a jersey of some kind might have affected their faith. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I do think sometimes we, we have to be careful which battles to pick and, um, you know, I just think it's, I don't know, it's all sad. I think there's no winners in that whole thing. Um, you know, Manly, I don't think, did well out of it particularly. I don't think that the players necessarily did well. And, um, you know, it looks like the season's going to be over as a result of losing a pretty critical game. And it's a sport. And I, I think the, the bigger issue for me is the politicisation of sport. I mean, for me, it started with Black Lives Matter. I mean, that, that was never about race. That If you went on their What We Believe page, it was about um, gender ideology and some of the most radical Marxist ideologies being pushed in under the guise of, um, you know, um, Black Lives Matter. The, the name was a misnomer for what it stood for. And same with <clears throat> a lot of what, a lot of these isms are fighting for, you know, dejected people. Um, and in reality, they're, they're just uh, scapegoating um, this this kind of movement and, and using it for left-wing political purposes. And I think that um, that's a shame. You know, sports people suffer, um, people from certain races, if there has been, you know, racism or there is racism, they suffer. And, um, yeah, I just think it's a shame that people aren't really aware of the nature of what is driving uh, these things. They have nice slogans and their marketing directors are brilliant. They're very, very good at making a uh, pernicious ideology look uh, friendly and loving and inclusive. And anyone that doesn't agree with it politically is is, is um, shamed and um, si silenced and their lives are destroyed. And that's pretty sad. Is excluded. Anyone who doesn't agree with them is excluded. And I loved what you said then. If to, we are an inclusive, we are an inclusive sport, mm. and we have to exclude him for his beliefs. It's that's oh. contradictory, and it's 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 contradiction. That's it. But it's it, it also it's, it's it's very sad, you know. Like I mean, Israel Lau is probably I would say um, our best rugby player, you know. And if you're a rugby fan, like I I don't reckon there was a period. Um, of time where like a sport was, was destroyed more by, by an administration. And um, to the point that I don't even know, like they're on stand now, no offense to stand, but like who's watching rugby union in this country <laughs> and, and, and fans are the ones that are paying for it. I mean, yeah. some ideology that what, like, I don't understand. I mean, it's sport. It, it's crazy. And, and I think that's, um, there are a lot of people that are upset. I think by the way that, um, that these issues are being handled generally. And, and I think a lot of people see through that these aren't just friendly little clubs that are inclusive and want this stuff. I mean, uh, the other thing I hate is that to <clears throat> to stand against this, it, it makes you a bigot or someone that hates a certain group and it's terrible. Just getting oh. back to something as well, it's very important. I know we're not going to be too much longer, but the language that the left use is very deceiving. Mm. So, um, you know, like they tend to mislabel things um, in like nice airy fairy terms. Um, and then like, you know, the Black Lives Matter thing that we were talking about, you know, and then when you said that you went onto their page and it was nothing to do with, it was more about, um, you said like gender and, flu and yeah, fluidity. More, I think they got rid of it in the end, but it was effectively, um, and it was talking about how <clears throat> it it's pretty much a war on, on, on men. If you look at the, the actual, what we believe page, I took a screenshot of it back at the day. I'd never heard of the term 
cisgender before, but that's where I learned it was on their page. I mean, I, I was very, very, very surprised. Um, but yeah, what I'm with you. I mean, isn't attacking men these days, though? Seriously. Well, I think that one of, I would say if I was educating old populace and I was responsible for it, which it's a big task for anyone to do, I would encourage my um, students or pupils to, to watch a, a video by uh, the former KGB agent Yuri Bezmenov and um, the, the length that he goes to explain how subversion of a nation works. And um, I, I think our enemies are just laughing at us, that we've got our men um, who... who our men. I mean, I was reading an article the other day. It was mainstream. It was on news.com.au. I think it was talking about how Australia's average testosterone level has halved, or you know, in, it's since the 1960s or something like that. And and it's not all just you know being inculcated with nonsense the whole time. I think a lot of it's our diet, and um, we're being encouraged effectively not to to do a lot of things that are actually good for men. Um, but yeah, I. I there is a hundred percent of war on masculinity in this country. There is no doubt. And, um, you know, normal traits that men exhibit are being demonized and criminalized. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I went to school in Australia and I mean, I went to an all boys school and I was studying, you know, Gwen Harwood poetry in year 12. And that was a compulsory subject. I'm thinking, how, how's this fair to make boys, 18 year old boys study poets like that. And then I'm competing against girls. And I mean, it's not, Women and men both are extremely smart. Humans are extremely incredible beings, you know. It's not about who's smart or who's not. But, you know, I feel like the curriculum at school is so obviously stacked for, for females. It's outrageous. And the fact that, you know, men are just encouraged to go to school and uh, really park <clears throat> what makes them men, I find it shocking and I find it deliberate. And, uh, yeah, I, I really do hope that there is some kind of um, semblance of normality that comes back, that men can be men, women can be women and you know, I think a lot of uh, the victims, unfortunately, of these isms I mentioned before are the people that are protected, allegedly being sought to protect. And I think one of the sadder things about feminism as a movement is that it, it really forced so many women to live like men in, in the way that they have to support themselves. And you look at <clears throat> that same article um, was talking about a crisis of fertility and, you know, they pretty much demonised being a mother. And um, it's now on the back burner. We've got a pretty much a negative birth rate in this country. You want to see some chickens come home to roost? My goodness, you wait and see what a 1.4 person birth rate does to your country. We're solely relying on immigration. And most immigrants aren't dumb enough to move here at the moment um, because our government has pretty much done the world's worst tourism advertisement over the last two and a half years. Okay. And you talk to people on the street and they don't realise how we're being perceived by the world. They actually still think, you know, like we're the throw a shrimp on the Barbie style Australia, the tough blokes out in the outback and stuff. It's like, no, you're the blokes that are locked in your house literally dobbing on your neighbours for having people around and uh, wearing masks in a car by yourself. I mean, that's how we're viewed now by the rest of the world. And that, yeah, it's scary, but it's true. And it's funny because if they ever did come here, they would see all that happen. <laughs> oh, I mean, Every day. Every day. Yeah, I see it every day. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is serious what's going on in this country. The brainwashing I is still see, I still see double maskers. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it doesn't work. No, and the ones that are walking around outside on like a 20 degree day and it's sunny, what are you doing? Breathe real. the fresh air. <laughs> Get some sun on your face. Damn it. Take the mask off. <laughs> now, um, we're running out of time, but we could probably ask you 100 more questions. So what we might do just quickly is maybe do some word associations. Uh, just to get through a couple of topics. So what's your opinion of the big man, Clive Palmer? I like him a lot. 
I really like him. Clive, I think he's, um, I, I know I have to be really, really brief on this, but uh, I, I honestly say this, if, if, every, if anyone met him and sat down and got to know him, I, I almost can guarantee you that they would like him. I think he truly loves Australia. And um, yeah, I think his heart is definitely in the right place. And I, I had a really good opportunity to, um, to spend time with him and to get to, to, get to know him. And uh, I think that um, the media, much I think anyone that's a media uh, an enemy of the media warrants a bit of a closer look. Some people are like, you know, there are some people that maybe don't, but if you know they're putting, you know, they're putting drugs on the market that might save lives, they're doing things to open up the country to help individuals, you know, save houses and, and address things like inflation, cost of living. And you know, I think you've got to look at the work and the fruit of their life. And um, you know, I, I was uh very, very, very pleasantly surprised. I didn't know. I, I, I joined, I was praying about it. And I felt like it was the right thing to do to join the UAP. No idea why. Uh, I was not affiliated with the party, had no love for it or any real opinion for it. Um, but yeah, I, I have to say that he, he impressed me greatly. Very intelligent guy. And I think, um, you know, not as well understood by people as he could be for sure. And Adam and Rebecca can jump in as well if they think of summer. What, what about Catherine Deves? I really like Catherine. Uh, we we had a really good time with her. I think she faced. I mean, she went like you know. You got to remember that she's just a normal person. You know, she didn't she didn't grow up in you know the firing line and wasn't a staffer as far as I can tell. Had no real kind of understanding of the political game. But she was like, like it was like a movie. You know, like um like rookie of the year or something where you know you have a child that is thrust into the major league baseball. You know, or like Airbud where you have like a golden retriever playing you know, with adults, you know, like it was that kind of thing. I mean, Catherine went from kind of obscurity into probably the fiercest political theatre in the world potentially. And I think she handled herself really well, all things considered. I think um, she was very sweet, like a lovely lady. I would definitely have a coffee with her and, you know, talk to her. I think she was a lovely person. Um, yes, I think genuine. Very genuine. And I actually think that um, I think she did a lot better than people think. And I think that she did a lot better than 33% of the vote in Moringa. I was amazed how well she did, actually. Um, <clears throat> I tell you especially what, if I was in that, man, especially in that second week of pre-polling, you could you could definitely oh, sense a change in the in the. Well, I I think I mentioned this to you, Steve. If I was a betting man, I, would, I and I was there for 11 days of pre-polling, I would have bet everything I owned that there was no way that Zali Stengel could win. There's no way, and. Um, she won in a landslide, allegedly. So, you know, it's uh, maybe looks can be deceiving, but um, it was a masterstroke by Morrison to make um, Zali support men and women's sport where she kind of um, forged, you know, her own career and name on the back of being a female in sport. Uh, I thought that was a really, you know, intelligent thing for, for Morrison to do from a political standpoint. I thought it worked. Um, but that, those election results, I'll, they're, they're hard to understand. I got one for you. Um, electric cars. Oh, I think you're an investor in commodities. They are the best thing in history. The usage of cobalt, nickel, lithium. I'm a big silver man. Uh, so when if, if, if there's true price discovery in these, I think you will all do extremely well if you're into those kind of precious metals. In terms of, look, it's like Mrs. Doubtfire. Have you seen the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, Adam? You're oh, a, I've seen you it know? so many years ago. When, when I was a kid, I couldn't work out why they couldn't just get him back as Mrs. Doubtfire, you know. Um, when you're a child, you're like, you're looking for a housekeeper. You've got, he's brilliant at the job. Just do it. Yeah. 
because you don't realize that it's a man dressing as a woman pretending mm. to be something that they're not. And yeah. it would be awesome. And I like what Miranda says at Sally Field. She goes, she's not real. You know, she's not real. And that's the thing. Uh, electric cars would be awesome if they were and uh, if they, they were worked. green and if they were, uh, you know, environmentally helpful uh, and if they were cheap. Um, and they practical. Don't, yeah, well, I mean, they don't really, unfortunately, that uh, yet. I mean, I, I think as well that, that people have to realise that electric cars aren't new. Uh, you know, there's some missing patents in the automobile history um from like 100 years ago oh man most cars were electric originally and they looked at yeah and steam driven so what yeah absolutely so look the it's not honest i don't think to say that this is a new phenomena that this is the uh this is the savior of the climate um i would say that uh, this is obviously a time where um i'd say big oil has now invested in certain things and they're divesting some of their oil interests because other forms of energy are coming online. And um, and I think that, um, yeah, I think they're looking to diversify their profit. And I think they're going to do very well in the short run. Um, but when when precious metals and uh, I think a lot of the componentry for these cars are valued fairly, if we go through a commodity super cycle, then I don't think that any of these cars will be being driven by someone on, you know, what we would, what would be commensurate today with like a six or $700,000 salary. I think that's those kinds of people when hyperinflation kind of kicks in, they'll be the guys that can drive them and feel good about them for a while. Um, but if you're thinking that, you know, people in Nairobi or, you know, somewhere in, you know, say we say around East Africa are going to be driving an electric car, you've got another thing coming and uh, it's just kicking the can down the road. I mean, you feel good about not polluting allegedly from your car, but um, you know, you, you plug it into a PowerPoint, you're, it's either coal or gas or some insanely subsidised hybrid um, version of electricity that somehow gets, you know, sunlight into our, into our, again, I'd love it to be true, but it's just, it's not, it's just not um, practical at this point in time. You don't have to go to Africa, just come to my street. We don't have gutters, we don't have street lights, and I don't have a garage. So where would you like me to put a charging station? That's right. And uh, and they cost a bomb. I mean, who, who in their right mind? I mean, it's, it's a lot. I mean, if you remove government subsidies from this industry, it would implode. Uh, I don't think Tesla's ever really had a – they've never made money. I mean, they've got one of these ridiculously inflated share prices. Um, and, you know, it's just a dream. They're selling um, – you know, I, I think a lot of these chickens will come home to roost at the same time. Uh, I think there will be – once people realise that real assets are important and that these – kind of other things are um, what you can do if they work or whatever. If people wanted to invest in these things and they were profitable, people would do it. You don't need government subsidies. So I think government intervention is destroying and distorting value. And what about one that's going to fire both of us up, Zali Stegel? Um, what, what do I think of her? Is that what your question was? Yeah, well, word association, so... Word association. Mm. <laughs> Wind turbines on the beach, right? Well, we, we, I mean, we were there that night, Steve. We saw what we saw. Um, you know, I think it's a stretch to call most of that. going on behind the scenes as well. It was wild, wasn't it? I mean, it would be hard to believe that that all took place again. And then the timing, like it wasn't like we were in a lockdown or something bizarre. But look, I think that... Um, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to say about that. I, it's a tough one for me to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Being very diplomatic. I was going to say, it, you can tell he's a candidate. It was a candidate. I honestly hope, I hope that, um, that all of these people really do want to see a good, strong Australia. And I hope that, um, that people are, if you're claiming to be an environmentalist, to be 
big on the environment, you know, that would be nice. Like I'm a huge reptile lover. Like I'm a, I call myself an amateur, what's called a herpetologist. I love Australian wildlife, love it. And I, I feel like it was such a weird experience being told that, you know, you love, you know, fossil fuels and environmental degradation when I'm the exact opposite. You know, I want to shoot feral cats and goats and camels and donkeys and, you know, water buffalo. I want to be trapping and foxes and, you know, cats are a big one. And, you know, I hear, I hear all these environmentalists do is talk about energy and, and really inefficient forms of energy. It's a joke. I mean, I, I think Australia is facing the extinction of more of our invertebrates than any other, probably every other continent on the planet put together. And uh, the crisis, that is a genuine crisis. You know, people talk, oh, climate crisis. How about just genuine mass extinction crises in Australia? There are so many of them. And some of the most beautiful things that you'll never get back. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, I hope I'm wrong um, that a lot of these people are more interested in power and lobbying on behalf of donors. I really hope I'm wrong. And I hope that it, at heart that these guys are people that love Australia and they love the environment. But um, I'm someone in life that if your actions do not match your words, then there is a big disconnect and something is usually being done for you know, improper motives. So I, that's all I could say. It's got nothing against her necessarily, but for me, a lot of these politicians that are independent, I mean, they, they, they treat us like we're very dumb. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. what kind of organisations? Well, the, the actions don't meet the words like what they say, you know, that's well, what I mean. They're in concert together. They have the same campaign manager. Like, Imagine if we could pull that stunt, like in crimes, for example, there's an aggravating factor, which is having, like if you're in company when you wound someone, for example, or, you know, you do a robbery in company, it's an aggravating factor. No court on the planet would deem that you weren't working in concert together to qualify as an aggravating factor being in company during the commission of a crime. The threshold is, it's very clear. And we're expected to suspend our reason again to believe these people aren't affiliated with each other they're not running as a party and i mean the 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 left's war on the words that we use is so extreme the word now independent is the opposite of meaning independent and mm -hmm. um as a culture we need to preserve and protect words and and i'm big in documenting things in paper in real life like i i actually think that there'll be a whole new hobby of preserving books purely for the sake of maintaining knowledge at a point in time and one of the saddest things I'm seeing, and it's like the extinction of our animals is, is worrying, as are the extinction of English words from their proper usage. And, uh, I mean, I, I encourage people to keep old school dictionaries from, you know, the early 20th century. If you can get older ones, you know, they're more of a collector's item typically, but 20th, you know, 1970s dictionaries, anything you can get your hand on because inflation back in the day was defined as, you know, a sustained period of increased prices as a result of money printing. That really was inflation definitionally. A recession was two periods or two quarters of um, reducing growth, you know, yeah. negative growth effectively. And now, I mean, we just have governments that just, they just run roughshod over our own language. It, it's, uh, it's scary. So anyway, that was a long-winded response. Um, so look, <laughs> as a person, I, I, I know a lot of people that know her. I, I don't know her very well. Um, I'm sure she's a lovely individual. I, I, I'm yet to meet her. I haven't met her yet. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen. Maybe I'm, maybe tomorrow when I'm up in your way. Come to a town hall. Steve will give her a call and uh, invite yeah. her out. Yeah, yeah say, on, say, say Zara on the podcast. Let's have her on the podcast. Say Zara from MacArthur wants to to meet you. Yes. <laughs> All right. So just lastly, what's the future for Andrew Robertson? 
Well, that's a good question. You know, I'm kind of a guy that um, I always like doing – I like being busy. Like I do like doing stuff. So at the moment, I've got to finish uh, my university degree um, where – what are we doing? Work stuff, be busy at work at the moment, very busy. And a big focus for me is literally just making sure that, um, you know, that I'm focusing on business. Um, I'm a lawyer by trade, but also, you know, you've got to be growing businesses and you've got to be doing things that are, are profitable and that people want to utilize your services. Like we are a capitalist country only just, but I like, um, I like business and I like opportunities. And at the moment there are some things that are, I'm finding very interesting. Um, so I like that. I like, you know, investment prospects. And we're very busy um, with our church congregation as well. Um, doing a lot of it is now like outreach ministry on the Northern Beaches. So we're doing some kind of this outreach. But a lot of people that you, you end up ministering to are not homeless. Like we have, Steve and I, our electorate, a lot. I'm not sure this is Australia-wide or Sydney-wide, definitely. But like no disposable income for food because of rent and cost of living and how much they put into their houses. Um, there's not much money left over. And I think with food prices going up, there's going to be this new class of people that are looking for, you know, f food opportunities at a discount. So that's a big part of what we're looking at uh, going into that ministry stuff. Um, so that's that's all kicking off. And um, I guess there's always, there's a few other things I can't talk about, but then the, the, I, I suppose politically, I, I guess probably the point of your question, I suppose now is, look, I don't know. I really don't know what I have um in store. I, I'm, I'm a Christian man, as we mentioned, and I'll, I'll pray about it. And I feel like I never wanted to be a politician. I never, ever wanted to run. I, I couldn't have thought of anything probably worse than being publicly ridiculed by people who will probably never meet you and wouldn't care to meet you, really. I think that's an interesting part of public life. But um, I was compelled. Um, I felt like it was the right thing to do. And I, I guess if, um, you know, if if I'm called or if I feel like I'm being called to do that again, I'll run. And, uh, and I, I would say one thing is that I'm not um, going to sit by and watch Australia be destroyed, uh, whether I run or whether I'm involved uh, just in think tanks or being, you know, getting, you know, to encourage people to to fight for this country, then um, that's what I'll do. So I can't say too much more at this point in time. We don't we don't know what's going to happen with the state election, um, but, you know, I'll be praying for, for um, people who, you know, are fighting for the truth and um, that are, you know, brave and courageous individuals to put their best foot forward and, if you guys are running in the state election, you know, I'll be praying for success and, um, you know, and I'd like to see some real freedom fighters get elected. I think uh, there's hopefully a new political breed in this country that will take um, these positions of power and hopefully restore a good name to, to public service because, you know, there's not many people that are admirable, I don't think, in that field at the moment and that's a real shame and it, and it hurts the whole country. So, yeah, and we'd love to have a big family, I should say, that my, my wife and I would love to have, you know, many children and... Um, you know, realistically, like my first and foremost job is to be a husband to my wife and a father to my children. And um, yeah, to be able to provide for them and to, to be their father is such a privilege. <clears throat> so that's my future. And is there any way uh, people can follow you, social media or anything like that? I'm not really on social media, I have to say. I've, um, I do have some um, like residual accounts from from the election. I think I do. I might have a Telegram account, but I don't really post on it. I think, but I, I do honestly. Almost, I like doing these things for posterity's sake. You know, like I like, I want our children to be able to know that there is an archive of their parents. You know, saying the truth. Then, do you know what I mean? Like there were people that were voices against some really horrific regimes in history, and um, that they spoke the truth. And I think that's something that I, I would like to, you know, leave um, just for my children's sake to know that. Uh, 
that we didn't just sit there and we didn't just cop it. So I'm not on much, but um, I'm very happy to to be a contributor if you uh, ever want me back in the future and uh, I'll be a watcher in the future for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you very much for coming on, Andrew. And, uh, you know, for everyone watching, uh, we really rely on you to get the word out about what we're doing here. So if you liked what you saw uh, tonight, please um, share it where you can. Uh, and, uh, you know, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Gab. We're, we're pretty much everywhere you, um, you might want to find a podcast. So uh, I really hope you enjoyed tonight's episode and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much, Andrew. Bye. -bye. Oh, absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for putting this on and uh, enjoy. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye.